We're going to read this morning from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. Mark 1, 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. You may be seated. Good morning. All right, so welcome, welcome, welcome. We are glad that you are all here. And uh, we wanted to say a special welcome to the McGee family. Now, I think that they were all here in first service, and I'm not sure if they're still here. So let's just clap anyways and welcome them because we like to clap. Yeah. And you can, uh, of course, meet them uh, in the bulletin, but please meet them in person. That would be much more personal, and uh, you would love to meet them. These are dear friends of mine, and we're so glad that they're here. Uh, two more things, and you guys can go ahead and uh, throw the sermon PowerPoint up there if you will, and I'll talk for just a second about our small group kickoff and about our walk for hope. So we want to make our spiritual journey uh, about being outside of the walls uh, just as much or even more as it is inside the walls, don't we? You guys, go ahead and throw the sermon PowerPoint up there if you will. There you go. Thank you. And uh, we want to we take it outside of the walls. So uh, we've got two things that we're doing right now to try to help us engage our faith in other ways. And one is the launch of our fall small groups. And so tonight we have our kickoff event. It's at 6 p.m. right here in this room. And everybody is asked, if you're coming tonight, please bring either an appetizer or a dessert. And you can find which one you're supposed to bring by looking at the little bulletin cover with the uh, first and last names right there and figure out where you belong. So bring some food with you. And at 5.45, drop it off in the gym, uh, in the activity center, right across the street. And then come on in here, uh, and we'll have a little time in here together to talk about our groups. And we're going to start as one. And then we're going to go across uh, the street, and we're going to enjoy the food and a little conversation. And we'll break up into our groups. And so we'll finish as many. And then that'll be just a way of us launching our groups for the fall. Uh, and if you're looking for a group, come on anyways tonight. You can sign up at this table in the back where you can just come tonight and meet us and we can try to help you find a group and get plugged in. Now, one more thing about it. Uh, today, after second service, this one, uh, we need as many uh, as you as would mind helping to come over to the gym and help us put up tables and chairs real fast. So I think Miss Pam Davis will be over there. And I, also, I think there'll be a few others over there that you'll find when you, when you get across the street. So please consider staying and helping us set up some tables. All right, one more, and then we'll pray. In October, we're having an event that we hope is the first of many years to come called the Walk for Hope. The Walk for Hope is going to give all of the proceeds that we gather through our nonprofit organization here uh, to the Children's Shelter of Northwest Arkansas for the purpose of helping construct Hope Academy, which is a new school being built to serve kids that are at the shelter or that have similar needs. And so on October 12th at 10 a.m., we're gathering here to walk one mile as a symbolic walk for hope. And all of the money that's given for registration will go to the school. And this is going to be a great opportunity to invite your coworkers or your neighbors to come along and be part of this too. 
uh, because it's something everybody can contribute to with a, with a good conscience. So uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but for right now, mark your calendars. So let's pray that God would make us effective outside the walls and not just in the walls in our worship. Can we all pray that together right now? Let's bow and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for opportunities like these to welcome the McGee's who are our dear friends and brothers and sisters in Jesus who have said, as many others have, that they want to be part of this congregation and the work of this church in sharing the good work of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you send people, call people, and bring us together in unity to serve. God, thank you for opportunities like our small groups and the Walk for Hope. Bless these works. Help us to engage others in our faith and in life and in conversation and about what means the most in life and about what makes for the good life in Jesus as we go about these things. Lord, we love you. And now we ask as we turn to the scriptures that you would pour through me the gift of preaching and that you would speak by your Holy Spirit so that all of us would receive a word from you, from your scripture and from your very self. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and together we say, Amen. All right. Uh, so today we're in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And last week we started Mark 1. And this month and next month we're going to go through just Mark 1 and take it kind of slow. And so today we find uh, at John, the wild man in the wilderness who's at the Jordan River, uh, who has many crowds, uh, all these people coming from all over Judea, we find one person who comes to John for baptism. So we're moving from the crowds of last week to one specific individual. And of course, it's Jesus who comes for baptism from his cousin John. Um, last week, when we talked about John's ministry as a prophet, I named two ways that the good news of Jesus showed itself to be subversive. One of those ways is that the good news is politically subversive. With John's ministry and Jesus's that followed, there could be no doubt that for these people, Caesar was not the king of the whole universe. They saw a new king coming and God already on the throne. And for these people who were being immersed in the Jordan as a sign of a good conscience plea towards God, a repentance of their sins, the good Jewish religious people that usually used baptism for the Gentiles. It was religiously subversive because everybody has to come to God fresh and get a clean start. And today, we're going to see that it's subversive in yet another way. And it is. The good news about, did I do that or did you do that? I'm just, I'm just not even going to bother. Okay, it's too distracting. I'm just not going to do it. Okay, this sermon is too good for me to get distracted with a clicker. You ready? Okay, here we go. The good news about Jesus is socially subversive. And here's a couple of ways we're going to work it out. Before we read the verses again, I want to try to give you three pictures of what it looks like to be socially the least and the last and the nothing. Okay? The first picture is this. Imagine in your mind a boy from Arkansas, dressed in prototypical Arkansas cartoon fashion. He's got his overalls on. May or may not be wearing a t-shirt. Straw hat, long straw sticking out of his mouth right there. 
and he's got on his cowboy boots. Now this boy, in our vision, is standing in the middle of New York City, in Manhattan, maybe right in front of the charging bull of Wall Street. And he opens his mouth in front of all of these urban Manhattanites, and he says, do you all know where I can find okra? Okay, playing off of these stereotypes, he looks like a redneck, an outsider, a country bumpkin. He's the last and the least and the nothing. Picture him standing in Times Square in front of all of the ads for Dior, Coach, and there behind him is a big apple symbol seems out of place, doesn't he? The second picture. This one comes from a movie. A number of years back, there was a movie about the Naval Academy and their boxing tournament. A young recruit enters in the tournament. His name is Jake. And things aren't going well at first. His love life isn't working out. His boxing isn't working out. And he just can't seem uh, to make it as a recruit. He keeps making mistakes. And one day he looks at his roommate and he says, I don't even know why you are still a roommate with me. I don't know why you stay here. And his buddy looks at him and he says, Jake, the reason I stay is you're my Mississippi, man. Jake looks at his roommate and he goes, what do you mean I'm your Mississippi? Roommate looks at him and he goes, well, you see, for us kids that grew up in Arkansas, Mississippi is the only thing that keeps us from being the worst state in the 50. <laughs> You're my Mississippi, man. Huh. <laughs> okay, the third picture. It's a crisp fall afternoon, and the players are running on to the gridiron. Nothing says America like football in September, right? The players run onto the gridiron. Some of them are dressed in red. and Some of them are dressed in, I don't know, yellow or whatever. And as they run out there, there is a notable disparity in the size of the players. The players in red are huge. They look like a herd of cattle running out there. The linemen are bulky. The quarterback is tall. And the other team, well, they look like you and me. But they run out and they play their hardest anyways. And they get crushed because they're playing Alabama. And they are Appalachian State. And there's two numbers that matter in college football in September. One of them always is placed to the left of the team name and the other is placed to the right. The number placed on the left you want it to be as small as possible, two or one. And the number on the right, you want it to be as big as possible. So you call up a little school, like out in the middle of nowhere, the country bumpkins, and you say, come on down and play the big boys. We'll pay you a million bucks. Not enough, we'll give you a million and a half to come out and get trounced and to help us raise the number on the right and lower the number on the left. 
play two or three of these games every year, 66 to nothing, 82 to three, and your ranking rises. And nothing says America like college football in September. Okay, what do these have, pictures have in common? They're all uh, cultural ideas of what is happening in this verse when Jesus shows up at the river to be baptized by John in the Jordan. They're all modern cultural pictures of what it means when the text says, when Mark wrote, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. The scholar at Baylor, David Garland, wrote this. Unlike the urban sophisticates who come from the city of Zion, Jesus comes from a town that did not even rate a mention in the Old Testament. He comes from nowhere, a place that they laugh at, a place that they scorn. And he shows up amongst all the crowds of elites to be baptized along with them. Now, how do we know that they thought of Nazareth and Galilee as such a backwater, redneck, hillbilly place? Well, because it's sown all through the Gospels. In John, when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, could anything good ever come from there? And when Jesus is preaching to the crowds in Luke 13, he reminds them that there had been a disaster in Galilee. Two of them, actually. One was that Pilate had killed a bunch of Galileans and uh, mixed them in with their sacrifices. Another one was a tower that fell and killed a bunch of people. And Jesus asks this provoking question, were they greater sinners, those Galileans? And he asks the question because he knows that in the mind of his listeners, that's exactly what they've assumed. Those low-class, nothing people are sinners, and the people from Jerusalem are holy. You see, the people that lived in Galilee were separated by just enough land, a strip of Samaria from Judea, that they had quite a different upbringing. The race was a little different. There was more mixing up there. Their politics were a little different. They had a different governor for the last couple of decades under Roman and Greek rule. Their economics were different because they were poorer. Their language was a little different. How do we know that? Because when Peter is waiting at Jesus' mock trial to see what will happen to him, the servant girl and the other people standing around say, you, you were with them, you were with them, you sound like one of those Galileans. You know? All y'all talk like that out there in Galilee. They were the nothings. They were the nots. And again, David Garland wrote this. He said, one might expect a more eye-catching appearance from the one who was more powerful than John. You remember what John said? I baptize you with water, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. One is coming who's more powerful than I. And we would think he would show up on the scene with an entourage and maybe a couple of like Cadillacs and a, or a helicopter if he was really going to make a splash. 
David Garland writes, he says, one might also assume that the Messiah, the Son of God, would cut a more imposing figure who would immediately capture the attention of the people. Instead, this Messiah, the one who comes from Nowheresville in rustic Galilee, seems indistinguishable from the rest of the crowds. He does not come with some special aura or halo. And you know what really ticks people off the most? It's when those little nothing teams come into town and they win. It's when Portland State comes to Fayetteville and it's too close. It's when we play Mississippi the next week and after the game they put all the gear on 50% sale. And everybody is already talking about whether the coach will make it halfway through the season or the next season. And we've all got our faces down. Oh, and it was a close call for Iowa yesterday. And it was a close call for Penn State, right? And we're like, whew, I can have a good month because my team didn't lose. Or, oh, the season's over because they did. And here's what Jesus does. He walks into town as an underdog. A nobody from nowhere. And he gives an invitation. This is the point of this. This is an invitation. It's an invitation by Jesus to all who are from despised places. This is an invitation from Jesus that responding in faith to God is not predicated on being hip or fashionable or powerful or in vogue or well-spoken or erudite. We would do well to pay attention to those who come from despised places, from lower classes, from backwater villages, from poor countries. We would do well to pay attention to those who come from places where we don't expect to find the kingdom of God. Yeah, Jesus is socially subversive, but he's more than that. Jesus is more than subversive. He also is going to lift up people. And so all the great stories find their end in Jesus. All of the great stories of the Jews and the Hebrew Bible find their fulfillment in him. But truly, all the stories that we tell are an attempt at telling the story of Jesus. Let me give you a couple of examples from his baptism. In verse 10, look at what it says. It says, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I'm going to have you notice three ideas here. Ripping, descending, and declaration. Ripping, descending, and declaration. Because the story moves at a fast pace and it's full of action. Mark is going to push us forward, throw us into the story of Jesus. He doesn't waste much time. He packs it in. It's just like Jeff's communion talk. One minute he's standing here and two sentences later it's Thanksgiving. And so Mark throws us into the action with these words. Heaven is torn open. 
It's not propped open like a door. It's not lifted open like a window. It's not pushed to the side like a curtain. It is torn open, which is to say that things that are ripped are not usually easily put back together. And so here is a hole in the fabric of existence to God. What used to seem so far away is now pretty close. And a highway has been built so that God can get to people, low people and far away people and nothing people and all people. And there are clues here that this story is being mapped over the great stories that the Jews knew. Look at a few of them. We have the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Where was God's spirit when God created the heavens and the earth? Where was God's spirit when God made all things, but he hadn't yet put them in order, hovering over the face of the deep? And so here the spirit is again over the water, descending onto Jesus like a dove. And it's important this does not say as a dove. The Holy Spirit does not appear as a bird. It descends like a dove. Which is to say that it flutters down. It doesn't swoop down like an eagle. Talons at the ready. It flutters down. It hovers. And descends. It shouldn't be much of a surprise to any of us. That when the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1, the bird that the Hebrew writers, uh, the bird, the word that the Hebrew writers chose to use describes bird flight. Hovering. Fluttering. They're mapping the stories over each other. And then when the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, a voice breaks into the silence. In Genesis 1, it says, Let there be light. And here the voice says, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Here is the light of the world. And so the voice breaks in. And in Genesis 1 when God said that what he had made was good and it was good and it was good and good, good, good and very good. Here he says, with you I'm well pleased. Now, it's not just creation, it is you, a person from the backwater, nowhere, nothing places, and I am pleased with you, my son. So it maps over creation, and it maps over the Exodus as well. The great story of the birth of the Israelite nation is found in these words, because what happens when Jesus comes out of the water? Well, verse 12 says, The Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And this word sent, it's the Greek word ekbalo, which means to throw. Jesus wasn't just led along on a halter. He was pushed. He was tossed. There's energy in the Spirit's leading. And in the wilderness, he's there for 40 days. Like the Israelites were there for 40 years because of their sin, because they couldn't pass the test and Jesus meets the test face to face. He was with the wild animals and the angels were attending him and he was being tempted by Satan, tested by Satan. 
And all of these stories start to ring in our ears. The, the Exodus is there. But so is King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who thought himself so high and important and mighty, and God threw him out for a while to be with the wild beasts until he was humbled and ready to come back and recognize who was king of the universe. And Daniel is here, who was thrown in with the lions and passed the test of faith. And Elijah is here, who was attended by angels in the wilderness. All of the great stories that they know are coming together in this man. And our point is this. Not that you need to learn how to pass the test the same way Jesus did and take away three principles for how to defeat temptation, although that might be helpful for you. But the point is this. Jesus passed the test. Our confidence is in what Jesus has done. In all the ways that Adam and Israel, God's sons, failed, Jesus has succeeded. And to understand this is to be grasping the gospel, what Jesus did that made him king. So he comes from nowhere, and he fulfills all of their greatest hopes and stories. He's the boy from the desert of Tatooine, who shows up in Mos Eisley and doesn't know what's going on. He's the boy that lives under the stairs in the cupboard and doesn't know that he's about to be sent on to Hogwarts and that his scar means something. He's every story that we've ever told that means anything. And we should not be deceived. God loves nothings. He loves them. And you know what? He loves the rich people too. He loves the kings too. He even loves Alabama football. He loves all people. But he delights in using underdogs. When Appalachian State knocks off Michigan, I think God just chuckles in heaven and says, that's what I'm talking about. We shouldn't be deceived. God loves nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is the point to take home with you. Think about what you were when God called you. Look back in your life to the time when you found Jesus and think about, were you very influential? Were you very wealthy? Would you have been considered a powerful and an elite? Not many of us. God chose the morons of the world to shame the sophisticates. God chose the powerless of the world to shame the powerful. God chose things despised by the world things that counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
Because God has united you in Christ Jesus. You see, whether you came from wealth or poverty, from the city or the country, whether your skin is brown or black or white or some other shade that you have a, a, a color for, or whether you uh, know exactly what it means for you to be in your calling at this point in your life, or you're still searching for God's will, He's united you here, but in the name of Jesus who meets all the stories. And for our benefit, God has made Jesus to be wisdom itself and not any one of our schemas, not any of our designs. And Christ has made us right with God, made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. And so as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. The kid who came from nowhere in Galilee. Today we're going to offer our invitation. And we already know we have a baptism plan. So, uh, John, if you guys are ready, you can go ahead and go back and get ready. Uh, and if anyone else would like to come, today's a great day to join in the story of Jesus. Go down in the water. Map your life over his story. God knows that he's been mapping his story over yours. So let's stand and let's sing. I will.